Lord, I thank you that um, we can come to you this morning. Uh, We come to a God who is a father, who has a son, and we have access to the Father in heaven through the Son, and not only that, we've been adopted into the family. And so, Father, today we we wish you a happy Father's Day, every day. We bring you our praise and our worship this morning, and we come to you uh, with open hearts. We pray, God, that we would be teachable this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would receive with open hearts the seed of your word and that it would take fruit in our lives. And so, God, we just ask your blessing upon the teaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, Uh, we have seen in in Matthew chapter 10 the commissioning of the disciples. Uh, They've been sent off to proclaim the kingdom of God in the villages and the towns and the cities of Israel. And now we're going to see here that Jesus is going to continue on in his own personal uh, preaching and teaching tour in the region of Galilee. And the gospel writer Matthew has been at this point and in this part of the gospel really starting to tell us about the growing resistance that Jesus was facing uh, with the people of Israel. Instead of receiving him as their king, they were beginning to rebel against him. And so we're going to see this more as we get into Matthew. And so let's check it out in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John at this time was uh, in the fortress of Macarius in the prison there, held in prison by Herod. We know John had proclaimed with great boldness and with authority the coming of the kingdom of heaven. He had identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had baptized Jesus. He had seen the spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of the dove. John had heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in John's proclamation of the kingdom, as he taught baptism, as he taught and led the children of Israel towards preparation for the coming kingdom, he he preached the need to repent and turn from sin. And we know about John. John was full of lots of boldness. He wasn't afraid to address issues that were going on. He, He courageously denounced lots of things. And one of the things that he spoke up against publicly uh, was Herod and the adulterous relationship that he was in with his brother's wife, Herodias. John had been very outspoken about that and Herod retaliated by putting John in prison. And so at first, you know, you got to get into the head of John a little bit. I imagine that he's put in prison and he thinks, this is no biggie, no big deal. I mean, I've been going around proclaiming that the Messiah has come and he is going to set captives free from prison. So I don't know what John's thinking was, but I imagine that as he sat in that dark cell, there was a messianic expectation and a hope in him that had gripped his heart, that had gripped his mind, that had gripped his convictions as we, as we know that the Messiah was on the scene and he was going to be busted out. But as the days uh, turned into months and Jesus did nothing about John's imprisonment, and not only that, the reports that were floating back in and coming to John through his own disciples seemed to indicate that Jesus was not establishing the type of kingdom 
or establishing the kingdom that John thought he was going to establish, that he'd expected. And when I think about John, I, I think it, it's, it's not hard to sympathize with him. John had proclaimed the judgment of God to the nation of Israel. But the thing was, is that though the Messiah had come, things weren't moving at the pace that John was expecting. And so John sent word uh, through his disciples to Jesus with this question. It was John's question. It wasn't the disciples' question. This was John the Baptist's question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? It's like, what's going on? You're the Messiah, right, Jesus? Why haven't you established your kingdom? Why am I still in prison? Should I be looking for someone else? And, and I think we can all sympathize with John in this sense that maybe we could ask about areas of our lives. Lord, why am I still imprisoned with this thing? With this situation? I thought by now you've come into my life that we would have sorted this all out. That you would have set me free from these Things or these shackles or this prison. In our lives, day can turn into week, into month, into year. And our minds get cloudy and, and overcast. And I guess when I, when I look at this story of John, I just love the honesty of the scriptures, don't you? I mean, they speak of their inerrancy. Because here's one of the greatest men in the scriptures, the man who Jesus actually said is the greatest. Having doubts, full of question. Full of questioning. And every one of us has our ups and downs. We have our, you know, our highs and our lows. You know, our high tides, our low tides, our ups and our downs. And there is only one man for whom it's always high tide. <laughs> it's Jesus. The rest of us, we have our ebbs and flows in our faith. We have our ebbs and flows in our grasping of truth. So John sends this question to Jesus. And verse 4 says, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus sends the disciples back and he tells them, recount to John all the things that you are seeing as I go about my ministry the very things Jesus is referring to here, things that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would do. Jesus was doing those things. The blind were receiving their sight. The lame were walking. Lepers were being cleansed. The deaf were hearing. Dead were being raised up. The poor were having good news preached to them. And Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He was fulfilling the words of God that needed to be fulfilled by the Messiah. You know, I think about John's ministry. John had proclaimed Jesus, the Messiah, as a judge. He said, there's going to be an axe in his hand. He's going to come and he's going to lay the axe to the root of the tree. And as John looked at Jesus and heard these reports about Jesus as he sat in that prison cell... Jesus, the, the healing preacher, doesn't seem to be the judge that John had warned about in many ways. And John was right to believe and to proclaim that Jesus must come and he must judge. But John was wrong in this sense that he stumbled over the gentle nature of Jesus. The healer, the preacher, 
the people's savior. You know, I think about today's culture. Today's culture is totally the opposite. Totally the opposite in this sense that, that our culture loves gentle Jesus. You know, gentle Jesus, he's my buddy. Buddy, buddy with Jesus. We love to be buddy, buddy with Jesus. The world, the, outside the church, loves to be buddy, buddy with Jesus. Everyone thinks that they are the friend of gentle Jesus. What does our culture stumble over? Judge Jesus. Judge Jesus. Our, our culture stumbles over a judicial Jesus. One who has a, a winnowing fork in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff and an axe in the other to take down the tree. And just like John, I would say this, our, our one-sided concept of Jesus does not represent him or his work. So as John says, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? You know, Jesus actually didn't say to John, yes, yes, or no, no. He just sent his disciples back and he said, you tell them what you see about me. And I imagine that when the disciples returned to John and they gave the reports, you know, maybe John's expectations were, were stilled a little bit. His fears calmed, but not silenced. And though his thoughts and emotions were stilled, some of his misconceptions weren't yet clarified. And here's the thing, you know, it wasn't Jesus who needed to conform to John's concept of the Messiah. It was John's concept of Jesus that needed to be enlarged. Jesus is the gentle, humble, meek friend of sinners. Our friend. He called us friends. But at the same time, we must grasp that Jesus is judicial. He is judge Jesus. He will judge the earth. The very hands that reach out to you in love, the very hands that are nail pierced for your sins are the same hands that will hold the axe and lay, root to, lay, lay a swing to the root of the tree and they're the very hands that hang on to the winnowing fork that will separate the wheat from the chaff. And sometimes, you know, understanding, our, uh, understanding the nature of Jesus, formulating this concept of who we are, it's, it's hard to wrestle and, and formulate, judge Jesus with Jesus, our friend, gentle Jesus. And when we question who Jesus is, when we wonder that, when people ask us, who is Jesus? Uh, how do I formulate in my in my heart, the concept of who he is, I think we have to look at how Jesus answered John. John said, Jesus said to the disciples, to John's disciples, look at the things I'm doing. Look at the things I'm doing and look at the things that I've done. Blind eyes see at my touch. Those that are paralyzed by sin rise and walk. Lepers are cleansed from the rotting corruption of sin in their lives. You know, the deaf hear his voice and they live. The dead are brought forth from the grave at his touch and the sound of his voice. And like John, you know, you and I may not completely grasp gentle Jesus and Jesus the judge, but, you know, sometimes I think we just need to look around us and go, wow, look at how God is working in my life. Look how I see God working in the lives of others around me. There is salvation in no other. 
Just look at the way Jesus is at work in each one of our lives. And Jesus says this to these disciples. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, you don't have to doubt Jesus. I would encourage you, put your faith in Jesus. Trust him with your life. Cast your burdens on the Lord. Verse seven says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft uh, clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So John sends his question to Jesus and Jesus sends his disciples, uh, John's disciples back to him and when they're gone, Jesus begins to pour out this praise on John. It's kind of cool. You know, he didn't, he didn't berate John for his question. He didn't berate him for his, his doubts, for his, for his fears. I think of Romans chapter 8 verse 33 which says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And Jesus didn't lay heavy on John. He, he just began to praise this man and to, to justify this man in a sense. Jesus shielded John's character. You know, I think about the world. You know how it works in the workplace. How we operate, how humans operate. We praise the man to his face and then when he leaves the room, we talk about all his faults. I mean, that's human nature, right? I mean, that's what humans do. But what does Jesus do? Jesus does the opposite. He waits until John's disciples are gone and then what does he do? He praises John behind his back. And I think that's a good practice for all of us to praise people behind their back. You know, we can be like John, question the Lord, then Jesus, the Lord gently corrects us, and then we beat ourselves up, and we say, oh man, I blew it again. Lord, I messed up, you know, I messed up, I, I just disrupted things in my walk with you, and my relationship with Jesus, and we're hard on ourselves. And I love this picture that Jesus, while he corrects John, at the same time, commends him and praises him. And I think that sometimes as, as Christians, uh, we're really hard on ourselves. I'm really hard on myself and my walk with God. I think that, that you know, Christians probably tend on the most part, if they're in a, in a good place, to be hard on, harder on themselves than they are on other people. I actually think that that's a good practice, that it's healthy to be hard on ourselves, but to be gracious towards others. You know, often the world looks at the church and they say, oh, they're so judgmental. No, we should be hard on ourselves and gracious to others. And I think, I think that as we consider just Jesus praising John behind his back, that, that, that you should take hope in that. I take hope in that. That, that if our lives are on that upward trend towards towards Jesus, then, 
then, then he's praising us as we, as we serve him and as we're learning to walk with him. He's commanding us. He's, he's speaking good things behind our back, talking to the angels. Hey, did you see that guy? Did you see that girl? Do you see what she's doing for me, what he's doing for me? So Jesus says to the crowds, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you see? Go out to see a a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. You know, a reed shaken by the wind. I love that, that picture. What's Jesus saying? He's saying there's nothing weak about John. There was nothing, you know, vacillating about this man. He was not a reed shaken by the wind. John was an iron pillar for the kingdom of God in his ministry. His life and his ministry were marked by moxie, man, courage, character. Crowds flocked to hear this man. And crowds, you know, do not flock to hear someone who was unsure of their message. John had conviction when he taught. John's voice was full of conviction and it was full of truth and there was the touch of the fire of heaven on his lips. Jesus said, what did, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, what did John wear? A camel's coat. He feasted on locusts. He was a man. He had a big beard. I don't know what it was. He was there was nothing soft about John. There was nothing soft about John's character. You know, he wasn't going to make a deal with Herod. Who does he send word to? He sends word to Jesus and he asks, he does, he's not negotiating with Herod to get out of prison. He's happy to proclaim the word of God and to suffer for it. Nothing soft about John. And when you think about John, John was not a man who was living for material ease, was he? That's us. That's our North American Canadian culture. You know, John's voice shook a nation because he was a man that was not self-indulgent. He lived with convictions in regards to the kingdom of God. You know, Alexander McLaren said this. He said, self-indulgence and the love of fleshly comforts eats the heart out of goodness and makes the eyes too heavy to see vision. So in verse 9, Jesus says, What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. See, John John was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Verse 10 tells us, This is he, Jesus identifies, of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John was the personal herald of the Messiah. He was the personal herald of King Jesus who was sent before him to announce his coming to a nation. And so in that sense, John was the last prophet before Jesus. That's what made him so great. The the message and the proximity. The message that he proclaimed and the proximity that he had to Jesus. See, it's nearness to Jesus that makes greatness. The closer the relationship, the higher the honor. It's nearness to Jesus that brings forth greatness in our lives. Jesus said in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, 
There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow, that's pretty high praise, isn't it? To say that of those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John is quite the compliment that Jesus delivers for this man. Especially when you consider the source, it's Jesus saying these things. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is greater than Abraham. John the Baptist is greater than Moses. John the Baptist is greater than David. In his character and in his ministry, this man was a giant for the kingdom. And yet Jesus says this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See, the difference is this. You can be born of a woman and John is the greatest of those born of a woman. But to be counted least in the kingdom of God, you must be born of the Spirit. Born again. Not born of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he'll he'll never inherit the kingdom of God. He'll never see it. And the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John by birth. Second birth. See, to know Christ, whom God has sent, is eternal life, the Bible says. It's not something that we'll receive. Eternal life is not something that we'll receive in the future. Eternal life is something we enter into the moment we invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our lives. When we place our faith in Jesus, we're born again. We're born of the Spirit. And in the mind of Jesus, greatness is defined by our nearness to him. See, all that John did is lower level than the person who will simply put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, come and be the Lord of my life. Save me from sin. Save me from death. That is greater than the ministry of John, to come to Jesus with humility and say, come into my life and be my Lord. I mean, think for a moment about the position God has placed his son Jesus in. And it is our relationship to Jesus that determines greatness. And to, be recog- and to recognize who Jesus is, is to be in the kingdom of heaven. To say, Jesus, you're king. That is to be a citizen of the kingdom. Those born of women, woman, and those born of God. Verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. That's a weird verse, don't you think? I I have always found that such a weird verse and I wish I could tell you what it means today, but I can't. Nobody really knows what this verse means. You know, I'll give you a, a few opinions. It's a tough verse. It could mean that the kingdom of heaven is attacked by violent men, like Herod, who went and laid hold of John and beheaded him. He he tried to stop the kingdom with violent force. It could also equally mean that the kingdom of heaven is, is taken by men who are aggressive on its behalf, who are, you know, enthusiastic and pressing in and laying hold of the kingdom of God. They go for it. You know, they take ventures of faith for the cause of Jesus. I think this also could mean that there are those who, th- who think that they can lay hold of the kingdom by their own violence by their own grasping, by their own force, and they feel, fail to recognize that 
that what God responds to is not, is not violence, but humility and meekness. And so, I don't, I don't know, there's, there's lots of meanings in that verse right there, so I'll leave you to figure it out. Let me know. Verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, the Pharisees actually came to John and they asked him this direct question. Are you Elijah? And John said, I am not. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. But Jesus says here, if you can accept it, John is Elijah. See, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, meaning that in many ways, his life and his ministry mirrored that of the prophet Elijah. You know, both of them shared a message of judgment to an apostate nation. You know, Elijah had to stand against Ahab and Jezebel. John the Baptist had uh, Herod and Herodias, his own Ahab and Jezebel. But this reference to Elijah comes from the end of the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi in chapter 4. See, the Old Testament closes with this prophecy from Malachi, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And so, as they were waiting and as the Jewish people were waiting in expectation for the coming Messiah, they were looking for Elijah to appear on the scene to proclaim the coming of the kingdom before the Messiah, come, before the Messiah came. And so that's why the Pharisees came and asked a very pointed question to John. And so when Jesus asked the nation, if you will accept it, if you can believe this, John is Elijah. When he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was literally wanting the nation of Israel to recognize the kingdom of heaven. If they would have seen that John was Elijah, then they would truly know that the kingdom was among them and they would truly acknowledge that Jesus was king. But what did Israel do? They rejected John. They rejected the kingdom. And they rejected its king, Jesus and if they would have just repented, if you can receive it, if you have ears to hear, hear. If they would have just repented and recognized Jesus as king, there would have been no need for 2,000 years of exile. They would have ushered in the very end of days. But they did not repent. And Malachi 4 verse 5 is still waiting a literal fulfillment. Revelation chapter 11 talks about that. I encourage you to go home, check it out. Read it in your Bibles for yourself, maybe this afternoon. It tells us how this prophecy is waiting to be fulfilled and it will be fulfilled by these two witnesses that will, that will come, one of whom is Elijah and the other who is Moses, who will come and they will preach the gospel during the great tribulation on the face of the earth. So verse 16, Jesus goes on and he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said, he is a demon. 
The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her children. See, the crowds were not satisfied with the faith and practice of John, and they were not satisfied with the faith and practice of Jesus. They were very different. The crowds weren't happy with a wedding. They weren't happy with a funeral. You know, in other words, Jesus saying, nothing makes you happy. Nothing satisfies you. You don't want to dance and you don't want to mourn. Then he began to denounce, verse 20, the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This is tragic. Jesus is being resisted. And, and, and ultimately, he is being rejected. And this is, this is the shift in the gospel of Matthew, that, the shift that is going to progress. And as Jesus is rejected, what we're going to see him do here is this, is he's, he's going to pull out the axe. Out is going to come the winnowing fork. Judge Jesus will denounce cities in the Galilee that will not repent at the message of the kingdom. In the face of all of the mighty works, they will not respond. And so he is going to denounce and judge and reject them as they reject him. You know, it's, it's interesting. We'll, we'll read these cities' names in a minute. They're all in the Galilee. You know, you go there today, it's like beautiful. It's like the Okanagan, man, lakefront. Why would there be no cities here? It's like, are you kidding me? This is like primo real estate. You jump all over to live here. But, but Jesus announced a judgment against these, against these cities and they've never been inhabited ever since. Never since the words of Jesus. See, all the evidence was pointing to the truth of the kingdom. John the Baptist proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was Elijah. Jesus comes and announces the kingdom. As we've seen all throughout this message of Matthew, there were many convincing proofs that Jesus offered, that he was Messiah, that he was king, that he was God, and yet they did not respond and they did not repent. And so he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Chorazan, Bethsaida, beautiful areas in the Galilee. And, and Jesus judged them because they treated Lightly, their opportunity to see and to hear God's Messiah. You know, Tyre and Sidon, they're, they're, they're Gentile cities. Mighty cities, big cities in comparison to these little Galilean communities. And Jesus said, they would have responded. They would have responded to all the things that, I, that I've done, but you refuse. And so I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon. You know, that, that teaches us a biblical principle, this, that, that God measures sin by the light an individual or a nation or a community has received. 
The, the greater the light given, the greater the responsibility to respond to that light. That'll become more clear. Look at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So you know, as I read this, it's telling us this reality for us who regularly hear the gospel, who actually who regularly hear the gospel and yet refuse to respond to the message of the gospel. Man, this is the box in the ears, man. Can I tell a Father's Day story? It's kind of not a Father's Day story. It's a story about my dad from his childhood. My dad's one of four, four sons. And so back in the day when they sat in church, boop, 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 they were all lined up and grandpa had them all within reach, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> they messed around in church. <laughs> and one time, dad was goofing off around his brothers and he said, I deserved it. And my dad reached over without even a look. He just gave me a little box, a little correction. And uh, he got my dad on the end of the nose, and his nose just started to bleed. And so he says, Dad, Dad, Dad. So he gets another one. (laughs) Dad, Dad, Dad. He gets another one. So finally he had to take his bloody fingers and hold them out for his dad to see that his nose was bleeding. And then his dad said, get out of here. Go clean that up. I love that story. (laughs) And it keeps Jonah and Eli in line. No. But you know, for any of us who regularly hear the gospel and refuse to respond it, this should be like that for us. It should be the box in the ears. If you hear the gospel and you refuse to respond, listen to me, great is your guilt before God. If you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you refuse to respond, great is is your guilt before God. See, Jesus said this, that the sin of Capernaum was greater than that of the sin of Sodom because Capernaum failed to respond to Jesus. See, Capernaum had something greater than Sodom. They had Jesus in their presence. In a sense, we might say we have something greater than Capernaum had. I mean, we have the message, the whole counsel of the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The church has been born. We have Jesus Christ living in our hearts. We're called the lights of the world. And where there is great light, great is the sin of those who refuse to respond to the message of light. I mean, think about Sodom. We know what Sodom was famous for. The practice of homosexuality. There there was never a, a city in the history of the world so given over to that sin. And God rained down fire and brimstone to declare his judgment on that lifestyle and all that it represented. And the church, you know, generally takes heat for picking on that sin. We're saying, oh, You know, if we list sins of like, what is the most, you know, grievous thing? The church typically puts homosexuality on the top of the list. And homosexuality is sin. 
But there is a greater sin that will face a greater judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. And the greatest sin is this, to have great light and yet refuse it. The sin of Capernaum was greater than the sin of Sodom. Think about it. The greatest sin of all is to reject the light of the gospel, to turn your back on he who came to save you. You know, all other sin of men don't even matter. If you reject Jesus, it's done. And as Jesus speaks of these cities, he says, greater privileges bring greater responsibilities and mean greater judgments. And if you refuse to respond to the mighty works of Christ that are all around you, if you refuse to respond to his word that is constantly before you, judgment will come upon you. Oh no, me and Jesus, we're buddies. My friends, Jesus is a judge. He wants to be your friend. But you got to respond to his message. And if not, he has an axe in his hand. So you know who the most hopeless people in the world are? You know who the most hopeless person in the, tr- in the world is? It's gospel-hardened people. They're modern Pharisees. They sit in a church week after week after week and they have indifference to Jesus. They refuse the message of the gospel. They don't bow their knee to King Jesus. See, indifference to Jesus, that is the epoch of sin, man. It doesn't get any higher. Judgment will come upon you. It is the sin of all sins. The worst sinners are not the, you know, the worst sinners are not the doers of the worst things. That's what we always think. We always think the worst sinners are the worst doers of all things. You know, list them. Whatever you think is the worst sin, that's, the, that's who it is. The worst sinners are those that have the clearest light, who know all about Jesus and care nothing about him and care nothing about his gospel. You know, the deadliest poison can be colorless, look harmless. And it's deadly poison not to care about the gospel. And you know, as Jesus says these things, all of a sudden as he's declaring this judgment on these cities that refused him, it's heavy, isn't it? He's declaring this judgment. And he begins... As he declares the judgment to speak not to the crowds, but now he begins to address his father who is in heaven. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared. I think about it, you know, he's almost preaching to the crowds and all of a sudden he lifts his head heavenward. And he declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding And you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus speaking to his Father, speaking to God. Now, you know, if this was me, I would have started whining, you know, like Elijah. I'm the only one left. You know, like the children of Israel so many times during their 
you don't care about us. You know, you've left us, led us out here into the wilderness for us to die. What does Jesus do in the face of rejection? He begins to offer thanksgiving to God. He thanks God for his grace, that in his grace, the father made a decision to hide the things of the kingdom from the wise and understanding and instead revealed them to little children. See, the wise and the understanding speak of those who trust their superior intellect. You know, their own superior enlightenment. People who have an intellectual conceit uh, when it comes to the things of the gospel. You know, I think of many of the the secular post-secondary institutions that are full of those attitudes. People who are just too clever to come to Jesus. The gospel does not appeal to those types of intellects. No, the gospel appeals to those who are still able to see with, with the wonder and the acceptance of a child. It says, God loves me and I want to respond to his love. He came to save me. You see, God hides the the gospel from those who are wise in their own conceit. And he reveals his gospel to those who will simply take him at his word. That's the way the father works. That's the way the father sent his son to proclaim the message. See, the gospel is wiser than the foolishness of man. And it's God's will that it is that way. That's what Jesus says. It was your good pleasure that you hid these things from the wise and understanding and you revealed them to those with the heart of a child. And Jesus was content with God's way. He was content with the refusal because he, he understood that it was based on the wisdom of God. That, that God does not make mistakes. He does not make mistakes in the offering of his gospel. And it's open to those who will have an open heart to him. Jesus said in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, the Father gave to Jesus all wisdom The Father gave to Jesus all power, all authority. He gave to him everything that was needed to establish uh, the kingdom. And and this is a a claim to deity on the part of Jesus. He's perfectly human, perfectly God, perfectly uh, man, perfectly God. Jesus is claiming here to have the very mind of God, claiming perfect harmony with the Father And he said this, no one gets to you, Father, except through me. Except those to whom I choose to reveal you. No one can know God apart from Jesus. You know, to claim that, or to think that through Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Spiritism, Animism, whatever your ism is, is to seek God in vain because no one comes to the Father except through the Son. He cannot be known apart from Jesus. Only Jesus can reveal God. 
Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. So let's wrap it up here. Nation of Israel resisted Jesus. Jesus pronounces judgment on the cities that had the greatest light of the message. Jesus claimed that no one could come to the Father except through him. That you cannot come to the Father apart from him. And so Jesus does this in this incredible chapter. Uh, He speaks in a moment here some of the words that have become the most well-known verses in the Bible. The nation resisted him and so what does Jesus do? He turns the message of this kingdom very specifically to individuals and he appeals to you and he appeals to me. You know Hebrews tells us long ago that in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son and Jesus makes the appeal to you and I as an individual and he says this, verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't those great verses? That is awesome stuff. Jesus said, come to me. Yoke yourself to me. Learn of me. In me you will find rest for your soul. You know, what did the Pharisees say? Pharisees said, do, man. You know, follow the laws of Moses. Live like this. Live with these traditions. But Jesus says, come to me. See, true salvation is found in a person and to come to him means to trust him. He's put your trust in me. Put your faith in me. Come, Jesus said, and I will give you rest from all your labors, your striving. He said, take my yoke upon you. See, when we come to Jesus, he he gives us rest. He gives us rest, and when we take his yoke, uh, we find an even greater, the, the rest of surrender and the rest of obedience. First, you know, I would say this, we find peace with God and then we find the peace of God. I I was thinking about this, I'm just so thankful for the peace of God in my life. I don't know how people live without the peace of God that stills and quiets their hearts and quiets their minds. And to take the yoke means attach yourself to me, be my disciple, follow me. Jesus said his yoke is easy, which means this, it's, It'll fit you properly. It's custom and tailor-made just for you. And it will fit you. And and the burden of doing his labor will not be heavy. He said, learn of me. He says, we come and and take Jesus and we surrender to him. We begin to, to learn of him and we discover in deeper and deeper ways his peace and what it means to trust him more and more. And life is simplified And life is unified around the person of Jesus. And and this is the invitation of Jesus to every single individual. And I love here what he says about his character. 
For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I think in so many ways this was the very thing that John didn't quite understand. That Jesus is gentle. That Jesus is meek. That Jesus is lowly in heart and before he ever wants to swing the axe of judgment or pull out the winnowing fork. His heart always, every single time, is to bring a person into a relationship with him. To lead that person to a place of rest for their souls. And as he declares these things, as he declares these things, the volley is set over into your side of the court, my side of the court. And the question is this. Will I let the ball go past me? Or will I respond to the message of King Jesus? The greatest sin of all. The epoch of sin is to resist Jesus. Let's pray this morning. I invite the worship team to come. As they're coming, will you stand with me? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, as we consider your word this morning, God, I think first of of those who know you, Lord, God, just in a fresh way, we just repent for any resistance in our lives, Lord. We all have areas of resistance, resistance to your gospel, resistance to your lordship. Father, forgive us for those things. We don't want to resist you. We want to come under your yoke, Lord, your yoke that's tailor-made for us, and we want to follow you. We want to go your direction. We want our hearts aligned with your hearts. We want to experience the reality of your peace in our lives. And so, Jesus, if there are things that are out of order in our lives, we ask, God, that you would reveal them, that you would impress them upon our hearts, and that this morning that we would take the time to repent of those things. And make them right with you, Lord. And that there would be a fresh sense of your peace in our hearts and in our lives. And Jesus, for those that are here this morning and don't know you, I thank you, Lord, for the gracious offer of your kingdom. That You are the gentle Jesus who offers salvation. Who, who said, come to me with your heaviness. Come to me with your burdens and I'll lift them off. I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your soul. And Lord, I just pray for those that are here that don't know you this morning, God. That there would be, that they would experience the reality of peace with God and the peace of God. That they would experience the reality of just having you come into their lives and, and lift the heaviness 
and lift the burden and bring freedom. And so God, this morning, I just pray for these folks, Lord. Pray, God, that every heart would respond to you, that every mind would receive you, Lord, and 